Hello, this is Michael Weinstein for the Society of Critical Care Medicine's I Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening. Today I'll be speaking with C. David Mazur, M.D. F.R.C.P.C., and Gerard F. Curley, M.B. M.S.C., Ph.D., F.C.A.R.C.S.I., about their article Transfusion Triggers for Guiding Red Blood Cell Transfusions for Cardiovascular Surgery, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which was published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Mazur works as an anesthesiologist and professor in the Departments of Anesthesia and Critical Care. Dr. Curley is a staff anesthetist, scientist, and assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesia. Both authors are at the Keenan Research Center for Biomedical Science and Li Ka Shing Knowledge Institute of St. Michael's Hospital, Department of Anesthesia in the University of Toronto. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today for this podcast. I'm sure we'll have a very fruitful discussion, uh, maybe not solve any controversies, but again, thank you so much. Thank you. We're happy to be here for the opportunity to speak to the audience. Great, thank you. So, again, thank you so much for this manuscript. Certainly, um, while it doesn't clear up the necessarily controversies surrounding uh, transfusion around the time of cardiac and vascular surgery, it certainly provides a nice uh, analysis of recent data and perhaps leads us uh, in some future directions, which I'm sure we'll get to. Maybe one of you could begin by talking a little bit about some of your background and interest in this area, and also what led you to look at the literature in this way and and, and do this study? So my background is in the basic science of critical care and uh, acute lung injury in particular, and I undertook this systematic review and meta-analysis actually as part of a, a master's program in clinical research that I was doing, uh, and thankfully I got in contact with Dr. Mazur, who um, has a lifelong interest in blood management, and I suppose the question, restrictive or liberal strategies, you know, blood transfusion has acquired a, it has been implicated as a major mechanism of harm during cardiac surgery, and most of this is based on observational studies that have demonstrated an independent association between blood transfusion and mortality. But in many of these studies, the extent or the severity of bleeding may be prognostically more important. And also, of course, anemia itself impacts adversely on outcomes. And I feel that there is a lot of equipoise in the question that restrictive strategies which have been adopted for critically ill patients in general may not be applicable to patients with coronary artery disease or acute coronary syndromes in particular. And I've been interested, as Dr. Curley said, in uh, transfusion in patients with cardiovascular disease for many years. I actually was one of the uh, site investigators in the original transfusion requirements in critical care study, which really transformed our approach to transfusion therapy in these patients. And as you may remember, that study patients in the ICU that a restrictive transfusion strategy was 
not worse, and in some cases better than a liberal strategy in terms of major outcomes. But even in that study, there was some question whether those results were applicable to patients with cardiovascular disease, and a subgroup analysis of the data suggested that that question was worthy of further study. And there have been a few studies since then, although it is a difficult area to do randomized controlled trials in, and we became interested in systematically reviewing the data that existed on transfusion strategies in patients with cardiovascular disease to see if any further conclusions could be made based on a systematic review and uh, formal meta-analysis. And just so that perhaps the listeners understand, these are not patients with acute coronary syndromes. These are patients with very high likelihood of cardiovascular disease undergoing cardiovascular surgery, correct? That's correct. The patients in the TRIC study, the subgroup that had cardiovascular disease, were not patients that had acute coronary syndromes. They either had a history of cardiovascular disease or they were undergoing surgery that was peripheral vascular or major vascular in nature. And uh, we undertook this review looking specifically at patients who were undergoing surgery, either cardiac surgery or vascular surgery, and as part of that randomized controlled trial were allocated to uh, transfusion strategies that involved different hemoglobin thresholds for uh, different groups. Maybe I've been kind of searching for this answer for a while, and I wonder if you can maybe provide any historical perspective as to where this notion of a optimal hemoglobin, or at least a transfusion trigger of a hemoglobin of 10 came from. I've traced it back, I think, to perhaps some anesthesia literature, really more descriptive and speculative, but I wonder your thoughts or your knowledge about the history there. It really does appear to be historical. There was a survey done in the 70s in which practitioners were surveyed as to what their threshold for transfusing preoperatively would be, and the common number there was 10 grams per deciliter. And so as you undertook this analysis, exactly what type of trials were you looking for, and how similar were the trials that you actually found? So the randomized controlled trials, we decided to include both cardiac and vascular surgery as we felt the populations were somewhat similar. The high likelihood of coronary artery disease in patients undergoing vascular surgery also. The trials, however, did differ somewhat. They differed in terms of the transfusion thresholds that were used. For example, the lowest threshold in the restrictive group would have been seven or seven grams per uh, deciliter, and the highest uh, threshold in the restrictive would have been as high as 8.5. So they did vary in terms of the thresholds that were used. Most of the patients were undergoing coronary artery revascularization procedures. Two of the trials included patients who were also undergoing valve surgery and in our search we only identified one study that was of patients undergoing vascular surgery procedures. 
And perhaps you could also describe a little bit uh, for the listeners about normovolemic hemodilution, which uh, some of the trials included, and certainly some centers um, rely on this type of approach for cardiac surgery. So we decided to widen our inclusion criteria, or at least we pre-specified that we would perform a sensitivity analysis, including studies in which acute normovolemic hemodilution was utilized. Of course, this technique is or has been used in the past to minimize blood transfusion, whereby prior to the surgical procedure, blood is removed and replaced with either colloid or crystalloid. And at the end of the procedure, this blood is retransfused. And the reason we included it in the study was because it, in general, it could or should result in a separation of hemoglobin thresholds, uh, at least intraoperatively, similar to what you would get with differing transfusion thresholds. And of interest, uh, the blood transfusion in the ANH group and the acute normovolemic hemodilation group or the amount of blood that was was similar. So it did not result in a reduced blood transfusion, which appears to be the conclusion in general from this technique and perhaps why it is not used commonly now. And regarding the studies, were the transfusion limitations, were, were they based intraoperatively or preoperatively and postoperatively? Was there any pattern there? So again, there was many differences between the groups. There were studies that had a preoperative, one study had a preoperative transfusion threshold. Four studies used intra and postoperative thresholds. Two studies used postoperative thresholds only and one study, as I said, used preoperative transfusion only. And in addition to that, one study used autologous predominated blood exclusively, and this was the vascular study. I see. So it sounds as though there's a fair amount of heterogeneity. How how did you uh, go about your analysis? So contrary to what you'd expect from that, we did not have a lot of heterogeneity in terms of our statistics. Our I-squared for many of the analysis was uh, zero, and there was no statistically significant heterogeneity in any of the analysis except for the pediatric studies in terms of uh, hospital end of stay. And perhaps you can review some of the uh, results and what endpoints you looked at and what played out as you reviewed the data. So we performed a search of the literature from 1950 to 2013, as, I, as we mentioned, to identify randomized controlled trials. Our primary analysis was focused on adult patients undergoing cardiac or vascular surgery, randomized to different transfusion thresholds. We identified seven studies enrolling 1,262 participants that met our inclusion criteria and pooled data from those seven studies revealed that a restrictive or, or a liberal transfusion strategy had no statistically significant effect on hospital mortality on myocardial infarction, on stroke, or on acute renal failure. I suppose it's important to say that the overall units of blood transfused was lower in the restrictive group 
and the risk of receiving a red cell transfusion decreased by a relative 25% in that restrictive group. Then the, the other outcomes that we looked at, such as infections or arrhythmias, blood loss, and length of stay, they did not differ between the groups. So finally, it's important to say that numerically there was an increase in the number of patients with MI and uh, stroke in the group that uh, received restrictive transfusion strategy. However, this was not statistically significant. So interesting. So what was what was surprising to you in the results and your findings? Is this what you expected to find or were you surprised overall by your results? I suppose we were not surprised by the results as such. It's in line, if you like, with the, the previous data that liberal or restrictive thresholds in general do not affect the outcome. Maybe what's somewhat surprising is that in the observational data around blood transfusion in cardiac surgery, blood transfusion is associated with increased mortality and increased rates of infective complications. And maybe what's surprising is that if this is true in a randomized controlled trial and in, in a meta-analysis with this number of patients, that effect should be visible, and it is not. Maybe what was most surprising from the meta-analysis is that there was no difference in the infective complications between the liberal and restrictive group, and that there was no effect on mortality, which if you look at the observational data, that effect should be there if it is true. Would it be incorrect then to walk away from this and I guess other recent data that perhaps you can describe as well to say, well, if liberal transfusion is not offering a benefit, then a restrictive transfusion makes sense clinically? Or would that be an incorrect conclusion from this analysis as well as other data? Well, the observational data has been quite consistent in suggesting that transfusion is associated with adverse outcome. And so many clinicians have been more restrictive in their transfusion practice because both it would potentially reduce adverse outcome to patients by decreasing exposure to transfusion and it would conserve blood products and be beneficial to the blood supply. There is no question that anemia is not a normal physiologic state. I think the real question is when do the risks of anemia outweigh the risks of transfusion? And I think that's what many of these trials are trying to answer. That is, you know, if one transfuses at a more anemic threshold, then is that better for the patient, or at least not worse for the patient than uh, transfusing at a higher hemoglobin threshold. So that if outcomes are equivalent with transfusing at a lower hemoglobin threshold, then from a, a resource perspective and also from a patient outcome perspective, it would be beneficial or preferable to transfuse at a lower hemoglobin level than a higher hemoglobin level. And so, I guess, as you point out in your manuscript, if while anemia is abnormal and is 
a predictor of worse outcomes, treating that necessarily with a transfusion does not necessarily imply that you're going to improve outcomes. There was concern that it may worsen, although that didn't seem to pan out necessarily in the in the data. Correct. And there is another issue in this, and that is, again, anemia is an abnormal physiologic state, and we should avoid it wherever possible. And uh, some have said, and I agree, that the best red cells are your own red cells. And so in addition to looking at ways to, or looking at which transfusion trigger might be optimal, others have suggested that we should also focus on preserving one's own red cells or augmenting their production so that one doesn't become as anemic and doesn't need a transfusion at whatever threshold is appropriate for a patient. Sure. So what methods, uh, because I guess that in, at least in the literature reviewed, it seemed as though hemodilution didn't pan out to be necessarily a productive method or certainly didn't seem to improve outcomes. What other methods would one currently think of at least evaluating or currently in practice to help preserve one's own red cells? So um, preoperatively, one could look at diagnosing preoperative anemia. Preoperative anemia is one of the biggest or most powerful predictors of perioperative transfusion. So recognizing, diagnosing, and treating preoperative anemia, I think, offers tremendous benefit in avoiding transfusion of allogeneic blood. Then in the intraoperative phase, there are numerous techniques that reduce red cell loss, and this can range from medications such as antifibrinolytics to reduce bleeding to uh, interventions that prevent hemodilution with the cardiopulmonary bypass machine and uh, employment of either physical or pharmacologic strategies to reduce red cell loss. And then others have used and advocated replacement or reinfusion of the patient's red cell loss, either with autotransfusion or with cell savers. And again, there are surgical interventions that can be done. I mean, in principle, using less invasive or minimally invasive surgical techniques wherever appropriate, again, can reduce uh, bleeding and transfusion. But it is a team approach. It uh, really is the perioperative team, and that involves the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the critical care physician, the uh, blood banker or hematologist, the perfusionist, and the nursing staff. And I will say that one of the things that I learned from analyzing these studies is they are incredibly difficult to do for many reasons. First of all, people involved in transfusion of patients have very strong beliefs about what the optimal transfusion strategy should be, even though there is, as we conclude from the meta-analysis, insufficient data to make a firm conclusion about what the optimal transfusion strategy is. So it is sometimes hard to convince people to randomize patients to one of one of two strategies because it involves asking them to temporarily suspend their firmly held, some would say almost religiously held, beliefs about optimal transfusion which are unsubstantiated by high-level data. Yeah. Certainly, uh, in practice as a surgical intensivist, I deal with that on a daily basis with very strong-held surgical beliefs about transfusion. So, 
I imagine that that does present some selection bias in, in some of these trials. Uh, you've participated in not necessarily some of these, but other other uh, trials as the, as the trick trial. And how do you think that pans out in terms of the selection bias? Well, it also affects the study design because some of the studies were randomized patients only after the procedure. Others randomized them before the procedure and some randomize them throughout the entire procedure. And there are pros and cons of the different designs, and the studies that randomize patients post-operatively in the intensive care unit or in the uh, post-anesthetic care unit, they may be easier to implement because it would involve fewer practitioners who are making the transfusion decisions, but they might miss the intraoperative period, which clearly has been shown to, or at least anemia in the intraoperative period, has clearly been shown to be associated with adverse outcome. So if you randomize patients postoperatively, you may have actually already had patients be exposed to the anemic or hypoxic risk of a lower transfusion strategy, but it is easier to conduct such studies. On the other hand, if you randomize a patient as they go into the operating room, they may not actually hit a transfusion trigger, and therefore you may have some patients who never become as anemic as either of the uh, restrictive or liberal transfusion strategies have randomized patients to. Thank you for uh, elaborating on those nuances of design. That's very interesting, something I hadn't really thought of. I wonder, as you think about design of these types of studies, I wonder more and more about our reliance on a, on a number and why we've chosen to pick 10 versus 7 or 8 versus 9. And are there, are there better ways to really assess the individual needs of a patient in terms of transfusion? And should we be using those in clinical trials to get a better handle on which patient would benefit from a transfusion and which patient is better able to tolerate the degree of anemia? which uh, they have at the current time? Well, that's an excellent question, and that comes up when uh, evaluating any trials of transfusion in cardiac surgery. Even using a number for transfusion, it's interesting to note that the WHO definition of anemia is different for men than women. And most of the studies, in fact all of the studies that I know of, apply a universal trigger and don't differentiate based on gender. So even within the numeric trigger literature, there is question as to whether women should be treated differently than men, although no study, no randomized control trial that I know of has addressed that. Beyond the numerical value for transfusion triggers, there is a suggestion that, again, some patients can tolerate anemia more than others and a variety of physiologic triggers have been advocated, including mixed venous oxygen saturation, lactate production, hemodynamic variables, and several other ones. The problem is that there hasn't been a strong link between these physiologic triggers and important outcome. And similarly, some trials have shown, for example, related to mixed venous oxygen saturation, that transfusion of a patient with a low mixed venous oxygen saturation doesn't always raise the mixed venous oxygen saturation, 
or if it does, it's hard to differentiate whether that effect is due to the volume administered with a transfusion or whether it's due to the increase in oxygen delivery. Because packed red cells are very low in 2,3-DPG and they have a very altered uh, oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve and it can take up to 24 hours to replenish the 2,3-DPG and normalize the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So while it is attractive to consider physiologic triggers, it is difficult. First of all, the link between those triggers and important outcomes is not well established. And second of all, from a practical perspective, it's very difficult to design a trial that incorporates all of these different physiological triggers. And finally, I would say the majority of clinicians still come down to making a transfusion decision based on a numeric value for hemoglobin. It may be different for different clinicians, but it very frequently comes down to a hemoglobin value. So as imperfect as it is, it is certainly, from our reading, the most commonly employed trigger used for studying transfusion in this realm. Great, yes. I'm appreciating more and more the complexities of these trials and, of course, clinical practice. I'd like to move forward to what future directions, but perhaps before we do, I was wondering what recommendations you might offer to your, for instance, your trainees uh, when dealing with a perioperative patient undergoing, well, I guess potentially any kind of surgery, but cardiovascular surgery has high risk of cardiovascular morbidity. How do you guide your trainees, and how do you how would you recommend we practice in in our uh, in our own worlds? Again, my recommendation is that the best red cells in one's bloodstream are one's own red cells. That the focus should be on reducing blood loss, treating anemia, and maintaining patients' own red cells wherever possible, and looking at transfusion as a secondary or tertiary treatment. In terms of the scientific literature, I still think there is equipoise. That is, I think there is insufficient information at the moment to definitively say that one transfusion strategy is preferable to the other. It is very easy in small trials to show that one can avoid transfusion with a lower trigger. It is much more difficult and takes much uh, larger sample size to show that restrictive transfusion practices are safe. And because of the difficulties in uh, conducting such trials, we have insufficient information at the moment to make strong recommendations one way or another. And before we uh, began, you mentioned some future trials, and I wonder how will we begin to understand and unravel this complex um, treatment strategy and how what type of trials are you looking for for the future? So subsequent to our systematic review and meta-analysis, there has been a large study published from the United Kingdom from Gavin Murphy et al. in March in the New England Journal of Medicine where they evaluated a restrictive versus a liberal transfusion threshold in patients after cardiac surgery and they included 2007 patients and their primary outcome was 
a serious infection or an ischemic event, uh, the serious infection being sepsis or wound infection, an ischemic event being stroke, myocardial infarction, or uh, infarction of the gut or acute kidney injury. They showed no difference between the restrictive and the liberal group in terms of this primary outcome. But I suppose most controversially, there were more deaths in the restrictive threshold group than in the liberal threshold group on a post hoc analysis of 90-day mortality. And of course, this has highlighted the idea that perhaps restrictive transfusion strategies may not be safe in this population. However, because we do not have any data on the cause of death in these patients and because those ischemic events that we talked about were similar between the restrictive and the liberal group, we can only speculate as to the cause of death and as to whether or how transfusion strategies might have impacted on this. The TITER II study is an important study, and it's, it is well done. From a design perspective, again, it's important to point out that this was a study in which patients were randomized postoperatively when their hemoglobin was less than 9 grams per deciliter. So they were there studying liberal versus restrictive transfusion after cardiac surgery. And one of the concerns about the study is that it hasn't addressed the interoperative period, which is a period of potential either onset of ischemia or potential for ischemic events to or hypoxic events to occur. Nonetheless, it is a very important study. It's certainly the largest randomized controlled trial by many fold that has been done to date. Their hypothesis based on the observational data suggesting that blood transfusion was associated with adverse outcome was that restrictive transfusion threshold after cardiac surgery would be superior to liberal. Their conclusion at the end of the study was that restrictive transfusion is not superior to liberal. They do not conclude that liberal is better, but they conclude that restrictive is not superior to liberal. So as even further complexity to the transfusion triggers for cardiac uh, surgery, huh? Yes, and there is another trial underway now, uh, the TRICS-3 trial, which is superiority trial. The hypothesis of that is that restrictive transfusion strategy is not inferior to liberal transfusion strategy in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. The TRICS-3 study uh, differs from the TITER-2 study in that patients are randomized at the beginning of surgery after induction of anesthesia to one of the two strategies, and the strategies are to be adhered to from the start of anesthesia until patient discharge or day 28, whichever comes first. The actual triggers are similar, although not identical. The TRICS-3 study is a global trial involving cardiac surgery centers in every continent in the world except Antarctica, and the inclusion criteria are slightly different than the TITER-2 study in that TRICS-3 is looking at 
patients with a Euroscore 1 of greater than or equal to 6, so a moderate to high-risk population compared to the TITER 2 study. And the primary outcomes in, in that trial? primary outcome in the TRIX-3 study is a composite of death, MI, stroke, or dialysis-dependent renal failure. And the sample size is approximately 3,600 patients. The TITER-2 study, again, was a very large study of about 2,000 patients. I see. And have uh, either of these trials controlled in any way for blood conservation approaches, as you've pointed out before, in, in terms of preserving one's own red cells? Uh, I don't know whether the TITER-2 study had specific blood conservation protocols. I don't think it did. The TRIX-3 study is meant to be a pragmatic trial, and it's meant to be broadly applicable. So while the transfusion of red cells is protocolized, the um, blood conservation and uh, hemostatic therapy are not specifically protocolized. There are guidelines that are in alignment with most of the society guidelines for how bleeding should be managed. But as uh, many studies have found, it is hard enough to protocolize and ensure that clinicians adhere to the red cell transfusion triggers to protocolize treatment of coagulopathy in the case of TRIX-3 amongst 50 centers around the world would be very difficult because some countries have blood products that other countries do not or traits that other countries do not. Great. And that, that the uh, TRIX-3 trial is uh, ongoing enrollment currently? Or? Yes, it is. So TRIX-3 has almost 1,000 patients enrolled as of today out of the target sample size of approximately 3,600 patients. We anticipate enrollment will continue for another year, and then there is a uh, six-month follow-up phone call to evaluate the vital status and the other primary outcomes, but the primary outcome for TRIX-3 is death, MI, stroke, or renal failure within 28 days of surgery or at hospital discharge, whichever comes first. Great. Certainly a... Uh... We will all be looking forward to the results of that trial. Are there other points that you would like to get across, either from uh, your own study or from the more general literature? So I think the message is that there is equipoise in this area. Despite years of trying to study transfusion in cardiac surgery, we are left with consistent observational studies which suggest that transfusion is associated with adverse outcome. Clearly, anemia, when it is severe enough, is associated with adverse outcome. We need much more high-level data to guide us about when the risks of anemia outweigh the risks of transfusion. Uh, I'd just like to emphasize again that Transfusion avoidance or transfusion reduction is easy to show with small randomized controlled trials. Clearly, in our meta-analysis, there's no question that restrictive transfusion practices reduce both the volume and exposure to allogeneic blood. I think most people would agree that avoiding allogeneic transfusion wherever possible is a goal that is worth pursuing. 
the question of superiority or non-inferiority of liberal versus restrictive transfusion practices requires large, well-conducted, randomized controlled trials. The TITER II study is a very important trial. It shows, A, that studies like this are feasible, B, that they are important, and it still raises the question of which is or is there an optimal transfusion trigger for patients with cardiovascular disease, and specifically in this setting, undergoing cardiac surgery. So my advice to trainees is to stay tuned and continue to follow the literature and read it in a uh, critical fashion, using journals like Critical Care Medicine to guide their transfusion practice. The only other point I'd like to make is I wouldn't want to be seen to be too critical of the TITER II study because it is a very important study. One of the other limitations I didn't mention that has been brought up by others is that 25% of the patients in TITER II were already transfused before they were randomized because they hit what clinicians thought would be a trigger in the OR. TITER II is a very important study. It was designed in a way that was modeled after the TRIC trial, and I think that is a very valid study design. There are limitations to the design of that study, and there are certainly important limitations to the design of the TRIX-3 study. It definitely shouldn't be seen that one trial is better than the other. I think both of them will shed very important data and will hopefully guide transfusion practice worldwide. An important message in trying to understand the optimal transfusion strategy in cardiac surgery or patients with cardiovascular disease is the importance of collaborative work. These kinds of trials are only possible with clinicians from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of centers getting together and agreeing to do a study that uh, will produce high-level data that will help us to guide our practice. That's one of the other conclusions that we have is that it's only through large multi-center trials like TITER II and TRIX-3 that we're going to answer important clinical questions. Well, thank you so much, and congratulations on your study. I really enjoyed our, our conversation um, and learned a lot about the nuances, both of clinical transfusion triggers as well as uh, study design for these important trials and the complexities thereof. So thank you both for joining us, and we, we appreciate your time. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on family presence, evidence versus emotion? Or SCCM Pod 232 on assessing family satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash Project Dispatch. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCM is an Associate Professor of Surgery at Sidney Kimmel Medical College of Thomas Jefferson University in the Division of Acute Care Surgery. He is Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Center for Critical Care. 
His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the ICU, communication and language in medicine, clinical ethics, and global surgery. Board certified in surgery, surgical critical care, neurocritical care, and hospice and palliative medicine, Weinstein is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American College of Critical Care Medicine. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.